One of the most divisive issues of the last Congress is now something the new one will have to grapple with, immigration reform. Good morning and Happy New Year. I'm George Boldarki. On this week's Cityscape, a Brooklyn criminal court judge is making waves with a new children's book that warns of the effects of unchecked immigration. The judge is with us this morning to talk about his book, Hot House Flowers. Also today, the story behind one of the nation's earliest immigrant rights activists. A new biography sheds light on the somewhat mysterious 19th century poet Emma Lazarus. And later, he's been nicknamed the Keeper of the Flame. We'll meet the guy who took care of Lady Liberty's torch for years. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Brooklyn criminal court judge John Wilson is causing controversy with a new illustrated children's book that critics have branded a thinly-veiled anti-immigration screed. Judge Wilson recently paid a visit to our studios to talk about his book called Hot House Flowers. Judge Wilson, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. It's a real pleasure. What is the premise of this book? The intention when I wrote the book was to be about patriotism, uh, the defense of home and defense of country where my Uh, uppermost in my mind when I was writing this book. Uh, Certainly it has a parallel with the situation of illegal immigration, but I would not say that's what the book is about. I didn't want to limit the topic of the book. It's an allegory. It's meant to be a broad allegory, and it's meant to apply to topics in the future as well as something that's topical today. The book, again, is called Hot House Flowers, and it is indeed about flowers in a greenhouse, some on the inside, some on the outside. Correct. The uh, flowers on the outside see the flowers on the inside, see that they have uh, the best of soil, the best of water, and uh, the dandelion in particular sends her seeds into the hothouse, and when those seeds land in the soil in the hothouse, the flowers inside begin an endless debate about what to do about these new flowers. And some of the flowers in the hothouse say, accept them, just uh, let them grow. Others are concerned about uh, what this means. Uh, What I was focused on was that endless debate to the point where the flowers inside let the situation get out of control. They're no longer able to handle it, and it takes the master of the hothouse returning to remove the dandelions from the hothouse for them to be saved. That clearly is an allegory involving God. I wanted that concept of God to go across religious lines, and I just wanted parents to have the opportunity to discuss that concept with their children, the idea of God. In her poem inscribed on the base of the Statue of Liberty, Emma Lazarus says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. Some say that this book goes against all of that. Not at all, not at all. You know, legal immigrants are welcome in this country. Our uh, forefathers, forefathers to almost a uh, a person in this country were immigrants. My family were immigrants. There is no issue, no problem with legal immigration. However, keep in mind that the whole concept of legal immigration has some control. Open borders were never the policy of the United States, and there are those now who are encouraging an open borders policy, which is uh, just detrimental to any country that does not control the influx of immigrants to their country. How do you think the U.S. should deal with the issue of illegal immigration? Being a judge, I unfortunately cannot answer that question so directly. Uh, Judges cannot express their opinion on political issues. This is clearly a political issue. What I've been encouraging people to do through the publication of this book is to contact your political leaders, to contact your elected officials and hound them to resolve this issue. And if they won't 
resolve the issue to your satisfaction, vote them out, and vote for people who will resolve this issue for you. That's the proper way to handle this. You're saying, Judge, that this is a political issue. How is this not a political work? This is a work of fiction, an allegory. Does it have political elements to it? Of course. Human beings are political animals. There's no denying that and no intention to deny that. The Legal Aid Society has questioned whether you can act impartially on the bench because of this book and has gone as far as to call for an investigation. There is no investigation. I saw that commentary. The next day I talked to my supervising judge about it. He spoke with the supervising attorney for legal aid who admitted that in two years on the bench there has not been a single complaint of bias. The Legal Aid Society does not have a single case to rely upon in making a complaint against me. Can we have you read an excerpt from this book? I'd be happy to. What's this, said the Red Rose, when she saw the dandelion seeds float on down and land in the good rich soil in which she was planted. I don't like the looks of those seeds, said the orchid. I think they come from the outside. Brothers and sisters, said the yellow rose, don't be afraid of these newcomers. Let them grow, and we shall see what kind of plants they are. What if they are weeds, said the orchid, and as she said it, she shuddered. There are no weeds, and you should not use such language, said the yellow rose. All that grows in the soil are our brothers and should be welcome. And though all of the flowers in the hothouse did not agree with the yellow rose, none wanted to be scolded for thinking of the new seeds in the wrong way. I assume your four-year-old has read this book. Yes, he uh, particularly loves the illustrations, uh, of course, being four years old, but uh, he's uh, beginning to learn more and more about the, the topic. Uh, sometimes he watches the news with me, and I sit and I try to explain to him what it is that he's watching in his, uh, in his terms. I'm curious to find out what your opinion is about some other controversial children's books that have been released through the years, books that have My Two Daddies or My Two Mommies. What do you think of those kinds of books? Well, there's obviously an audience for books like that, and this being a free country, free expression should be allowed, so I don't have a problem with the idea of these books being published. The problem becomes that some parents want to present them to their children and some parents don't. And that's the freedom of choice that some schools are not allowing parents to have. By presenting some of these more controversial topics to children without the approval of the parents, you have schools enforcing certain values on parents and on children that these parents and children may not want passed on to their their children. I'm certain that there are plenty of schools that do not want to present my book to their students. That's a travesty in a lot of ways. If you believe in discussing and debating these issues, you should have my book available and have a book on a separate topic to show the difference so you can discuss it. Judge John Wilson, the book is Hot House Flowers. In your other life, you are a Brooklyn criminal court judge. Thanks so much. Thank you. Real pleasure. If you'd like to judge for yourself, John Wilson's book is available through Amazon.com. She's best known for her poem that's inscribed at the base of the Statue of Liberty. It's called The New Colossus, and it reads in part, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Emma Lazarus was much more than just one poem, but her life has been somewhat of a mystery until now. We're finally learning more about Lazarus, thanks to the woman with us this morning. Esther Shore is a poet and professor of English at Princeton University. She's also the author of a new biography simply called Emma Lazarus. Esther, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here, George. 
In your book, you write that when you were a little girl, your parents gave you Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. In it, they wrote, Here is a young girl we would like you to know. You later introduce your book by saying, Here is a woman I would like you to know. Why should we get to know Emma Lazarus? I think people need to know her because she's was such an important figure in her own day. I mean, it's it's hard to get a sense of just how many people read her. She was a household name in many households. She was known internationally. She was known not only in the Jewish press, but in the mainstream press. She was a the, one of the first crossover phenomena, <laughs> as we say. Uh, she was a remarkable woman. Why, though, through the years, have we not known too much about her besides this poem on the Statue of Liberty? To some extent, her poems fell out of favor. After World War I, I think there was a kind of loftiness, a kind of elevation and idealism, which simply couldn't carry the day after the disillusionment after World War I. Uh, so her poems were less frequently anthologized and less frequently read. Uh, her sisters did a number on her by simply by memorializing her as they did. They released a two-volume a collection of her poems after she died. And they split off the Jewish poems from the other poems, which was a poor idea. Uh, one can see why they did it, uh, but I think it took its toll on her legacy. And the final reason is that uh, her letters to her best friend, Helena Decay Gilder, who was an illustrious woman in her own right, a founder of the Art Students League, uh, a painter, and the wife of Richard Gilder, the editor of, of the Century magazine. These letters remained in private hands, uh, locked in a cupboard uh, until the 1980s, when a very intrepid researcher named Betty Roth Young uh, simply asked a descendant of Helena, do you have any letters? And she opened a cupboard, and there were a hundred, more than a hundred of these really, really vivid um, revelatory letters, and now we have them since Betty's edition came out. What sparked your interest in Emma Lazarus? Well, my book is part of the the Jewish Encounters series, jointly published by Next Book and Shokin. Uh, and at the inception of the series, her name was was being tossed around um, as someone about whom little was known, one of these people who who are very known and yet not known at all. Uh, and I went home and did some homework and basically read the letters, and I was en enthralled by the letters. Uh, and that was really the beginning of my, my interest in her. I had as many misconceptions about her as do most people I meet. You know, I, I myself thought she was a daughter of Im immigrants, far from true. She was a fourth, perhaps fifth-generation American from a very wealthy Sephardic family in New York. She was a native New Yorker. She was a native New Yorker. Um, and her life is earlier than most people think. And a lot of people associate her with 20th century immigration. Uh, not at all. She was born in 1849. Uh, she lived her childhood during the Civil War. And she died tragically at very young at 38. So by 1887, she was gone. She was Jewish and she was a woman in the 19th century. Right. How challenging was that for her? Well, she was also really rich. <laughs> so she had access to um, to people, to opportunities um, that many Jewish women didn't have. She was also doted on by her father. So while she apparently never went to school, 
um, and we don't know for sure that she didn't, but it seems that she was educated in her father's library, like Virginia Woolf, for example, like Elizabeth Barrett. Um, she was very erudite. She had an extensive library at her disposal. She learned Italian and French and German from a very early age. Uh, she was also from a very illustrious family. They were very eminent in Jewish communities, both in New York and in Newport. Her uncle was the, the quote, minister. He was not a rabbi. He was a cantor. But he was called the minister of the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, uh, which still exists, obviously, today. So she had opportunities also because her father, I think, favored her among six daughters and one son. Um, the evidence for that is that he published a 200 to 300 page volume of her poems when she was about 17, which not every father does. <laughs> of course, not every daughter produces this much. Um, and her father also was trying to get beyond Jewish circles and was cultivating his own connections with wealthy and erudite and cultured men who were not Jewish, and she then had access to them. Emma Lazarus referred to herself and her family as outlaws of the Jewish faith. How yeah. come? Well, she's referring, of course, to Jewish law. And um, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue is and was an Orthodox synagogue, which means that they observe the law. It's hard to put together a very clear picture of what her family's observance was. We have this one uh, amazing shred of evidence, which is a letter written by Emerson's daughter, Ellen, when Emma Lazarus, who had a long correspondence with Emerson and with his daughter, uh, visited the Emerson household, Ellen Emerson sat her down and had a, a rather serious discussion with her about religion. And Ellen writes to her sister that Emma described herself and her family as outlawed Jews, which is to say they observed a few rituals. They observed the Passover, it appears. They observed the Day of Atonement. Uh, it seems that for a time they observed the dietary laws of Kashrut. But in general, they did not live by the law, at least in their own homes. Uh, and Emma, as she became um, older, as she had more opportunities to write about her own Judaism, came very clean about the fact that observance of ritual was not for her. She did not see it as a necessary element of a committed Jewish life. And despite the anti-Semitism of the day, she never sought to pass as a non-Jew. She embraced her Jewishness. She embraced it by defining it very carefully um, as, number one, an historical consciousness of the Jewish people. She was always a reader of history. Um, she loved to read Gratz's history, famous, still famous history of the Jewish people, and she mined it for material for her writing. She also uh, was interested in putting before the American public a new image of the Jew, um, not as a creature of the study house, the sort of pale, sickly um, person who spends all his or her time over texts, but a person in the world, a person of the future, a person who is enlightened and strong. She also was a Zionist um, and certainly has been embraced in this century by Zionists. That's a part of her legacy, very important part. In her own day, however, um, this was a position she embraced reluctantly, I would say, as a function 
of being disappointed about her efforts to raise money on behalf of immigrants, um, particularly 1881 after a season of very bloody pogroms. Immigrants were streaming into New York. And she was trying to raise money and eventually was very disappointed by American Jews. She volunteered on Ward's Island working with refugees. She did a number of things. One of them was to go, to be there, to work with the refugees. She worked in an employment office in New York downtown. She visited Ward Island several times. Uh, she's described teaching English. I don't know how many times she did this, but she certainly did it. Um, she, More importantly, probably, she raised money for them for the shelter and for what she eventually called repatriation. That was the word used for what we now call Zionism. So she went in print uh, in the spring of 1883, uh, espousing the cause of a Jewish homeland. And for this, she was ridiculed. She was ridiculed by religious Jews who thought there was a kind of mad messianism about this. You know, one has to wait for the Messiah, right? One has to wait. She was ridiculed by Reform Jews who felt that this was going to disturb the standing of American Jews. And in fact, they were very busy deciding not to put it in their Pittsburgh platform of 1885. And she was ridiculed in the mainstream press as a, as a fantasist. It was simply a kind of pipe dream. And we have to remember that it, this was a good decade and a half before the first Zionist Congress. She lived through the Civil War. Is that also reflected in her poetry? Not until very late in the Civil War. I mean, she was young. She was 11 when the war started. And for most of the Civil War, she was writing um, lacrimose verse elegies and doing translations from Italian. This is how she taught herself Italian and French and German. In the very last weeks of the war, um, she wrote an elegy for a New Yorker who was killed, a friend of her father's, I believe. And it, it's a it's an iconoclastic poem um, about the ambivalence of victory and, and how victory is not going to be met with joy after this war. She also wrote uh, two remarkable poems about John Wilkes Booth. Right after the assassination of Lincoln, um, Booth hid out for a while, was a kind of fugitive. And when he was cornered and when the barn he was hiding in was burned, uh, she wrote a, a poem really in the voice of Booth, and then followed it up with a poem written in the voice of his mother. And that told me a lot about who she was, that she was a woman of great imagination. As a kid, we're talking, she was a kid. She was a teenager. She wasn't afraid to try out something uh, very oblique and daring. You mentioned Emma Lazarus's relationship with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yeah. I got the sense that she really pushed herself into the literary circles of the day, and she wasn't afraid to do that. She was great at picking up mentors, and she did this by um, just announcing herself and uh, putting her gifts on the table and saying that she was ready to learn, ready to read, uh, ready to be a student. The relationship with Emerson was a difficult one. Uh, it began with great you know, high hopes on both sides, and Emerson quickly kind of got real about the fact that she was very young and very inexperienced as a poet. Uh, and he cooled off a bit about her. Um, his letters were a little more infrequent. And Emma characteristically responded by demanding more of him, not by retreating. Do you think that she died feeling 
like she made a difference, that she was heard? Certainly her poem, The New Colossus, uh, was not heard. It was heard briefly when she wrote it in 1883. It had fallen out of favor by 1886. When the statue was dedicated, her poem was not read, not mentioned, not invoked. But more importantly, her vision for the statue as an emblem of um, refuge, of welcome to immigrants, uh, was really not in evidence at all. And the poem was not put on the statue till well after her death in 1903. Let's take a step back here. Sure. She was asked to write a poem? Yes. There was a, a commitment by the Americans to pay for the pedestal of the new statue that was a gift of the French. And the statue was about two things. The statue was about Franco-American friendship, and the statue was uh, a tribute to the French Enlightenment, to the spirit of the revolution, Republican spirit. So she rethought this statue. She reinvented it. Um, and it, her poem is a very iconoclastic poem. I mean, it's a great irony that this iconoclastic poem became an icon at all. And even more so that this icon has obscured her, I think, instead of revealing her. So she wrote this to be auctioned off to raise money for the pedestal. It was published in a few places right after this event in 1883. And then it fell out of favor. It was revived only in the 1930s by pro-immigrationists who felt that this poem really could be used to encapsulate a vision. And they used it well, and it has not fallen out of favor since. Can you read that now very famous poem? Sure. The New Colossus, 1883. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. What do you think Emma Lazarus would think of the immigration debate that's currently taking place in our nation? I think she wouldn't be surprised at how divisive it's been. Her own day was a day in which immigrants were greeted with a lot of different feelings. And even her appeal was not to the government. It was not to Americans at large. Her appeal was to the Jewish community, whom she understood to be, even at the remove of four or five generations, a people who had emigrated, an exiled people. And even among Jews, she found it very hard to rally people to the cause of immigration. What I was so moved by in Emma Lazarus was that even after this disappointment, in 1882 and three, she extended her mission to the American public instead of withdrawing. And she asked the entire nation to take on the burden of providing refuge for refugees. Her answer to frustration was, 
to say it again and say it louder and insist. If you have something true to say, if you have something urgent to say, insist on it. And um, I think that's what she would be doing. Esther Shore's Emma Lazarus is published by Shockin Books. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. For over 30 years, Charlie DeLeo volunteered for the National Park Service on Liberty Island, doing odd jobs and helping with upkeep of the Statue of Liberty. But DeLeo is best known as the man who was tasked with cleaning and repairing Lady Liberty's golden flame. During his tenure, he saw two different versions of the torch, and he learned a lot about just what makes the Statue of Liberty such an enduring symbol. My name is Charlie DeLeo, and for 27 and a half years, I was the keeper of the flame and main caretaker of the Statue of Liberty here in New York Harbor. I, I got the job at the Statue of Liberty in early, in January 1972, I was out of work. I bought a Circle Line ticket, and halfway over uh, uh, to the Statue, I got a thought in my mind, why not ask for a job? They never asked me to, uh, to, to go up to the torch at all or to even to take care of it. At that time, believe it or not, they didn't have a steady man taking care of the torch. And uh, it was really neglected. So I started going up there by myself and cleaning the torch, the, the inside glass of the glass flame by myself and changing light bulbs. And when my boss found out about it, he said, hey, this guy's the right guy. We can't get the old-time guys to go up there. So you want it, you got it. That's how I became the keeper of the flame. To clean the uh, the golden flame, uh, which I only had to do, thank thank God, when, when the seagulls dropped their droppings on it, and uh, I used just water, no chemicals, no nothing, just water and soft cotton rags. And you have to be very, very, try not to rub, you try to absorb, absorb the droppings off. With the old glass flame, I'd use glass cleaner, but not with the new one because, you know, you don't want to take a chance of a chemical reaction against the gold leaf. And the statue on a windy day, the torch will sway six inches. So if, uh, if you will get problems with that arm moving, uh, you'll never make it up there. Now, the new uh, uh, torch, which was uh, completely done for... Uh, Statue's Restoration of 1984-1986 is a solid copper shell, and then it's got three or four layers of shellac over the cop- red copper shell, and then it's go- gilded, gold leaf, and uh, it's 24 carat, and the, uh, you got 16 lights on the outside, and they're 250-watt floodlights, and they go on with a photocell as soon as it gets stuck. Now, the new golden flame is lit by outside reflection, and they say it's a hundred times brighter than a full moon at night. The new golden flame at night is really awe-inspiring, and, um, you know, it's much brighter than the old one, uh, uh, which was lit from the inside, reflecting out the glass. It's like you're in darkness, and all of a sudden you step into the light. It's just overwhelming, and you can see the new golden flame on a clear night, they say, 20 square miles out to sea. The torch and flame is absolutely my favorite part of the Statue of Liberty. It's the most single powerful s- symbol, which really stands for man's uh, quest for freedom, for equality. And the statue itself speaks a silent, universal language of hope to anyone that uh, can understand who cherishes freedom. 
you have to realize that the new immigrants coming to America, they want the same opportunity and, and they have the same aspirations. And, uh, you know, they want a better life for themselves, for their children, for their families and grandchildren. And they're no different than the old immigrants. So we have to keep that in mind that uh, she she is a, a universal international star, a symbol of what everybody in the world who wants a better a better country or a better way of life, better opportunities. And she symbolizes all that besides symbolizing uh, freedom, liberty. You know, when I, when I was working there, and even as a volunteer for four years when I retired, you could actually stand in front of the Statue of Liberty and hear a half a dozen different foreign languages at one time. Just like if you were at the United Nations. I mean, it really is an awe-inspiring uh, to work there. I have a very, very deep feeling for the torch and flame as well as for the whole statue because I am a Vietnam veteran, served in Vietnam. And uh, so I know that freedom, we can lose it at any time. And it's a, to me, it's a gift from God. And it's something that we ought to try to do our best to preserve for our children and grandchildren. So I, that, that thought was always in my mind. And all the 2,500 climbs up to the torch and taking care of the two torches, I mean, that thought is always with me at all times. I really believe that God spared my life in Vietnam just so I could be the keeper of the flame, period. Charlie DeLeo. He's retired now, but still makes regular trips to visit the Statue of Liberty. That's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can find archives and download podcasts of Cityscape at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend.